Welcome to all of you. Uh, if you've come because you were uh, given uh, an invitation or maybe invited by a friend, we're very pleased that you've taken the time to come. A big welcome also to our speaker, Billy McCurry. Uh, if, you, if you have been invited, hopefully you realize that's who you're coming to listen to. It's going to be a little bit different from a normal church service this evening. Billy is going to share his story with us. And at the end of that time, there'll be an opportunity for questions, if something that he says has, has raised any questions for you. And then there's also food at the end, that will be through this door. So it's uh, be quite relaxed at the end, you're very welcome to stay and eat something with us. And you could also uh, chat to Billy during that time if you'd like to. That's really uh, all I need to say about the format. Uh, quite a straightforward evening, but just before I hand over to Billy, let me just uh, begin with a prayer. 
Lord God, we thank you that we're able to meet together this evening and hear from Billy. But we also pray that we will not just hear an interesting life story this evening, but we will also hear about the power of Jesus Christ to save and change people like us. We pray for Billy as he speaks, that you will help him, and pray for us as we listen, that we will understand what is being said, and also just consider these things for ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll hand over to Billy, who I think is going to speak from a bit lower down. So I'll speak from down here. Um, if you prefer that I went up a few steps so that folks at the back maybe could see me, I'll probably just come up here. Would that be, that'd be better for the folks at the back? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll be happy to take some questions afterwards, um, simply because I know when I talk about Northern Ireland, I talk about a prison experience, uh, unless you've experienced it yourself, it's like talking about Mars. And so I might say something that you don't quite understand. You might, I might say something that would need clarification, and I'm conscious of that. So um, if you want to ask any questions regarding clarification, I'll, I'll take those. But please feel free, absolutely free, to ask any question at all that you want to ask. I won't be embarrassed by any of your questions. Uh, no matter how hard-hitting you might think it is, uh, don't you hold back, okay? If you asked a, a question, I will do my best to, to give you um, a straight, honest answer, okay? Um, now, I just want to read from uh, a portion of God's Word, Second uh, Corinthians 5, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and give us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting, counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Amen. Now, um, there's some younger folks here and it's good to, to see them. Uh, but even some of you older folk may have forgotten, you know, the, the time when Northern Ireland featured in the news practically every night and all for the wrong reasons, all for the reasons of violence. So what I'll do is I'm going to take two minutes just to give a very crass overview, write a very brief history lesson um, to set the scene for you. Ireland as a nation for centuries has been plagued with uh, violence and there have always been attempts to bring about the end of uh, the violence, to bring about a, a solution to the conflict. And just over 100 years ago in 1921, Ireland was cut in two. She had 26 counties to the south, an, an, uh, an independent Irish Republican state. And you had six counties to the north, um, still linked to the United Kingdom. Uh, but within that six county northern state, still linked to the United Kingdom, there was a very sizable Roman Catholic minority that wanted to sever the link with the United Kingdom and have an All-Ireland. So really from the very uh, inception of the Northern State, there was the potential obviously for trouble as a very sizable min minority were uh, not happy with the political division of Ireland. So throughout the, the history of the Northern State, there were periodic outbursts of violence, never lasting too long. Sometimes they only lasted a matter of months and then it petered out and died down. Um, but in 1968-69, violence erupted on the streets of Belfast and Derry. 
And I think most people at the time thought, yeah, it's going to last the way it lasted in the previous outbursts of violence in the 50s, 40s, 30s, etc. It's just going to last a few months and then it'll all die down. But sadly, uh, it went on for three decades. Uh, so for 30 years, part of our nation was embroiled in a civil conflict that um, left you know, thousands of families touched as a result of the, of the violence. Uh, and even within the confines of your own community, not far from here, I don't think the, the Birmingham pub bomb, bombings like that would be no more than about 30 minutes from yourselves by car, if that. So, uh, you know, even yourselves were touched by that. Uh, this community in the UK was touched by that period of violence. Okay. So I was born into a very happy, very loving, very secure home uh, with my mum and dad, an older sister, an older brother, and then myself and a younger sister. And uh, growing up in the 1960s, you know, with that whole cultural revolution and uh, the, you know, the Beatles and Rolling Stones and everything. Um, I remember uh, my sister, my older sister, she was into the Beatles and the Monkeys, and my brother was into everything Motown. And I remember my mum as a little boy going around the house cleaning. And as she cleaned, she would be singing, and she would be singing country and western songs. Um, and I've got a love for country music today, and I trace it back to my mum and her singing uh, these country songs as she cleaned the house. Um, now, what really captivated my imagination as a little boy growing up in the 60s was um, right at the very start of the decade, President Kennedy said, by the end of this, by the end of the 60s, we'll have a man on the moon. And so growing up, watching those Apollo missions as the Americans tried to get the man on the moon by the end of the decade, that was captivating my imagination as a little boy. Um, and so when the troubles, as they became known, started and British troops were deployed to the streets of Belfast and Derry in August 69, uh, it didn't cause me a great deal of angst as an 11-year-old seeing British troops on the streets with their armored personnel carriers, uh, their guns, their foot patrols, you know, the, the barbed wire fences that they put up, etc. Um, it was a novelty for an 11-year-old to see this on the streets. But what was more interesting was what, were the Americans going to get to the moon? So that, that was, you know, what I was, you know, uh, watching as a little boy. Now, where the troubles impacted my, my own life? Uh, Saturday, the 27th of June, 1970. Uh, my mum came up to uh, the bedroom. She woke me up. She said, would you like to go for a walk with your dad? He, he's gone out for a walk. It's a beautiful morning. Would you like to go with him? And I said, yes, and I'm glad I said yes. Uh, we got, I got up, got dressed, went out that morning, the whole of that morning with my dad, um, spent with him into the early part of the afternoon. And it holds so, so many precious memories for myself. Um, it was a cloudless sky. It was a beautiful day. Um, and it holds so many precious memories, but at the same time, very sad, very solemn memories. Um, that night, uh, I was outside, I was playing, I was waiting on my dad coming home because it was such a warm night. All the, the sort of the women were uh, standing at the doors talking. And then there was a, a blast of automatic gunfire, machine gunfire. It was about half past 11. And little did, did I know that was my dad being murdered as he was coming home. And uh, as soon as the, the gunfire, that blast of automatic gunfire, uh, it just continued right after that, right through the whole night, constant shooting. Um, and as the shooting, you know, was continuing, I was pulled in off the street into a neighbor's house, separated from my mum as everybody scattered. And I was sitting in this neighbor's house and I had my eyes closed. I was sitting on the seat and people were coming and going. And over the gunfire, uh, I could hear housed whispers, people saying, it's awful, 
It's terrible. Does he know? Has anybody told him? You know, all, all hushed, right? And uh, the f- folks thought I was sleeping because I'm sitting with my eyes closed. And, and I get up and uh, I say, what haven't you told me? And I'm running out the door and hands were trying to grab me. Uh, it was too fast for them. I get out the door and I'm running up the street. It's dark. The, the shooting, it's continuing. You can, you can see the tracer bullets. As I'm running up the street and my friend's father stepped out and grabbed me. And I must have been crying and I was saying, where's my daddy, where's my daddy? And he said to me, Billy, your daddy's not coming home. Your daddy's dead. And I remember saying to him, well, perhaps this is God's will. And he grabbed me by the shoulders. And the shooting's still going on. There's gunfire in the back of this incident. He grabbed me by the shoulders. He literally, he nearly shook the life out of me. And he said, uh, there is no God. And he used an expletive referring to the Republic and the Roman Catholic community across the road. He says, it's those across there. Never you forget that. And I guess from that moment on, I didn't really forget it. And this became an irrelevance to me. You know, the, the Bible and God. Because if there was a God who was all-powerful and all-loving, he could have stopped what had just occurred. He could have stopped my dad being murdered. Um, And we hear a lot today about, you know, radicalization and things like this. And, you know, terms like radicalization, de-radicalization, all those buzzwords weren't in fogue back in the 70s. But I guess the concept was there. And, you know, think... People ask, well, what what radicalizes people? What leads to people being radical? And I remember the day of my dad's funeral, standing with uh, my uncle beside me as they were bringing my dad's coffin out of the home. And my mom holding on to the casket, screaming. The screams were terrible. Screaming, don't take my husband, don't take my husband. And had to pry her fingers off the casket as she's screaming. I'm standing watching this and I swear I'm going to get my own back. I'm going to get revenge. At the time of the, the shooting, my mum was three months pregnant. And I can still remember my kid brother. He was born six months to the day after my dad was, was killed. And I can still remember him as a wee boy running in off the street, running up to my mum and asking what a daddy was. How come his friends had a daddy to talk about and he hadn't? And to see my mum break down in tears trying to explain why there was no father figure in the home. Sows seeds of hatred and bitterness to a greater degree and a greater extent. And yes, I swore I was going to get my own back. I was going to get revenge. And my mum... And she often said, were it not for the fact that she had a little boy to look after, we'd be able to look after, she would, herself would have got involved in terrorism. Such was the level of hate and bitterness that entered her life. You know, she went from such a, a loving, compassionate woman to this woman who was really bitter. And that bitterness, that anger, that rage, that hate uh, entered the home and became like a cancer like a darkness that just enveloped us. Now, I know that my family don't have a monopoly on violence. As I say, there have been thousands of people impacted as a result of the madness that emanated from Ireland during those three decades. And not every family reacted the way my family reacted, but we, we reacted with hate and rage and anger and bitterness. And... Uh, I said about my mum, you used to go around the house cleaning and singing. After my dad died, she she never sang again. She said she had nothing to sing about. And so at the age of 16, I joined a a terrorist organization. Sadly, we live in a world where we're all too familiar with, you know, terrorist groups and what terrorists get up to. I don't need to go into any gory details that won't bring any glory to God. Um but you're, you're familiar with terrorists and terrorist activities. As a result 
of my activities within this group at the age of 17. Um, I went out on the 19th of February, 1976, and very cold-bloodedly, callously, without any sense of remorse, twins of conscience or anything, took, took the life of another uh, human being. And two weeks later, I was arrested for that shooting and found myself in the Mays prison uh, at the age of 17. Um, when I went into prison, it wasn't a big shock to my system. The type of activity I was involved in, I was either going to end up dead or end up in prison for a very long time. I ended up in prison um, for a considerable period of time. Now, after I was sentenced in 1977, I was sentenced on the 12th of May, 1977. I was too young to be given a life sentence. So I was detained under the Secretary of State's pleasure. And the only difference between Secretary of State's pleasure and life sentence is that it takes longer to say Secretary of State's pleasure. That's the only difference, right? So um, I stood in Belfast High Court that, uh, that day in May, and along with my partner in crime, we, we simply laughed, arrogantly laughed in the judge's face. Such was our contempt of... Uh, man's justice and the, uh, the court system. And I was transferred to the, what was the eight blocks of the Mays prison. Now, if any of you are familiar with uh, the history of the province at that time and can remember uh, what was going on around the time, the eight blocks um, emanating from the eight blocks, there was a Republican protest because the protesters were wanting political status, which the government had taken away from them. And these uh, folks sat naked in a cell. Uh, that's how the protest started, just with a blanket around them. So there's the blanket protest. And then they escalated it to the dirty protest, as it was known, where they got their excrement and they just smeared it around the, the walls of the cell. And then it was escalated to the hunger strike. Now, if you don't remember the blanket protest or the dirty protest, you will probably remember the hunger strike where 10 Republican hunger strikers starved themselves to death. So that was all within the eight blocks where I was taken to after I was sentenced. Now, no sooner had I been in the eight blocks a number of weeks than a fellow prisoner by the name of Peter Thompson uh, arrived after he had been sentenced and he was carrying a Bible. Now, when I left Peter, when we were in remand, he, was, he wasn't carrying one of these. He wasn't talking about Jesus. But the, between Peter leaving the remand center and coming to the eight blocks uh, and being sentenced, he had undergone a conversion and was talking about Jesus, which I thought at the time was very convenient because he's just been given a life sentence. He wants to get out of prison early. How is he going to get out of prison early? Well, he has to show the authorities that he's a good guy. And um, he's not carrying a bomb anymore. He's carrying a Bible. But as far as I was concerned, Peter was a hypocrite. He was a phony. He uh, had just been, I say, given a life sentence. He couldn't face up to the pressure of a penal system. So he was needing a crutch to lean on. And this was a convenient crutch. So Peter was going, wasn't going to pull the wool over my eyes as far as I was concerned. But Peter appointed himself the block barber. So if you needed a haircut, you had to send for Peter. And when Peter started to cut your hair, he had a very novel approach, a unique approach to sharing his faith. He would get the scissors and put them in the side of your neck. And he would do this on a regular basis. He would put the scissors in the side of your neck. And he would say, right, if I just apply a little bit more pressure... I'm into your juggler. And you're lying there in a pool of blood and you're not a Christian. And see, by the time they get a medic down here to stem the flow of the blood, you're dead and you're in hell because you're not a Christian. Now, what about that for evangelism? <laughs> if, there's any, if there's any hairdressers here, try that tomorrow with some of your, your clients. And you, I, I had no time for God or religion like and Peter's sticking the scissors in your neck. And I'm saying, look, Peter, just cut my hair. I've no time for this Jesus stuff. 
Um, and so that, that, you know, was Peter, right? Now, see, around about 1978, I started to re receive uh, these magazines from New Zealand. They came in a long brown envelope. It was a handwritten address to myself in H Block 7 of the Mays Prison, postmarked New Zealand and a New Zealand stamp. Okay, so I pulled the contents out of this envelope, caught the name of Jesus somewhere in the corner, put it back inside the envelope, curled it up in a ball and threw it in a waste paper bin. I had absolutely no time for God, I had no time for religion. Six or eight weeks later, another one of these magazines inside this long brown envelope. New Zealand postmark, New Zealand stamp, handwritten address to myself. Goes in the bin, know what's inside it. They keep coming, I keep throwing them in the bin. I write out to my family and friends asking, if they had passed my name and address on to some religious maniacs who were taking great, great delight in trying to torture me in prison with this stuff, tell them to stop it because it's just going to end the bin. Um, it's a waste of time them sending it. Now, my family didn't know what I was talking about. And see, to this day, I, I do not know, my family do not know anybody in New Zealand. But these things are coming from New Zealand. I'm throwing them in the bin. Peter Thompson's running about the place with his novel approach to evangelism. And I thought, well, Peter could make use of these, of these magazines. Yeah, uh, they're coming from the other side of the world, and I'm throwing them in the bin. He, he's into this stuff. I'll send them to Peter. And that's exactly what I did. As soon as the magazines reached myself, I would call the prison officer back and say, send it over to Peter Thompson in A-Wing, the other side of the 8th block, because uh, he's into the relig religious stuff. August of 1980, I went out to the medical room for headache tablets. Who's in the medical room but Peter Thompson? And I said to him, Peter, I hope you're getting the magazines I'm sending over to you. I don't know who's sending them, Peter, but you're quite welcome to them. And even before Peter could answer, the medical officer who became a good friend, a guy by the name of Joe Martin, um, Joe looked up and he said, Oh, do you not think it's God who's sending you these magazines? I had never heard anything as stupid in my life. God sent in magazines from New Zealand to the Mays prison. And I said to Joe, I'm skeptical about God. I don't believe God exists. Now, usually if I had said to a Christian prison officer or a, a Christian who was professing faith in prison, the likes of Peter Thompson or some of the other guys, if I said, look, I don't believe in God, they would come back at me with what I now know as a Quote from the book of Psalms, Psalm 14, verse 1, or Psalm 53, verse 1. Both verses are the same. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So I said to this medical officer, I don't believe that God exists. I thought he was going to call me a fool. Going to give him a, a line of argument, take my headache tablets and get offside. But Joe looked at me and he said, oh, you don't believe in God. And I said, yeah, that's right. He's going to call me a fool because you can read these Christians like a book. You're skeptical about God? I said, yeah, that's right. And he looked at me and he said, I want to tell you something, kid. Regardless of whether you believe in God or not, it doesn't take away the fact that there is a God. Nor does it take away the fact that there's a heaven and a hell. And if you die in the state that you're in at the moment, you're going straight to hell. And once you get there, kid, you will not be skeptical anymore. He says, in fact, you will be a believer. Because everybody in that place believes. And the tragedy of it is this, that once you get there, there's no release date. You're there forever. Now, I couldn't throw him a line of argument for you're a fool. He had wrong food at me. I wasn't expecting that. I turned and I hightailed it out of that medical room. And as I thought about it, if there's a heaven, if there's a hell, no argument like. I know where I'm going. If. There is a heaven and a hell. But is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Is there a God? You know what? Religion's right. Here I am in this prison encountering these Christian prisoners, prison officers and prisoners. And you know what's really annoying about them? Is their dogmatism and their arrogance. And like, you know, their, their Bible is the only Bible. Their way is the only way. Their Jesus is the only Jesus. Nobody else gets a look in. You know, what about all the other religions? And I thought, you know, that was such, such crass arrogance to say that your way was the only way. You know, that, that dogmatism really rubbed me up the wrong way with them. But a seed had been sown. 
and I'm asking these guys questions. And what I can't give an adequate explanation for, even up to the present day, is that those magazines that have been coming on a regular basis every six or eight weeks, after that conversation with Joe Martin in the medical room, I never received another one. It's as bizarre as that, it's as freaky as that, but that's just how it happened. And I said, I never read one of them. Now, on Christmas Eve 1980, um, a woman called Gladys Blackburn came down to my cell. Uh, Gladys was a remarkable wee woman. Hey? Uh, she stood, if she was standing up here, you wouldn't see her behind this lectern. Um, and she came into the H block that Christmas Eve night. It was a Christian prison officer on the, the front gate, and he said to her as she came in, Gladys, go down to D-Wing, ask for a fellow called McCurry, because he's been asking a lot of questions. So Gladys came straight down to D-Wing, asked for himself, came into himself, and after a bit of formal conversation, she lifted down the Bible, and she started to read from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 23, verse 38. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Or one of the thieves and one of the one of the thieves and one of the malefactors uh, who was hanged reeled in Jesus saying, "If you are the Christ, save yourself and us." But the other answering his partner in crime, the other answering rebuked him saying, "Do you not fear God, saying we are in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds." But this man, referring to Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And she stopped at that 42nd verse. And she said, I want you to think for a moment who this thief is calling Lord. Here's a man with a crown of thorns pushed into his head. Here's a man and his back has been lacerated with a, with a Roman whip. They've spat upon him. They've punched him. Uh, they've beaten him. They've stripped him naked to humiliate him. Here he is hanging in this middle cross. Does he look like a Lord to you? Because on the cross, Jesus Christ was still Lord. He uses a defined title for him. And as she's explaining that, um, I come under what I can now term as a deep conviction of sin. Couldn't put it in those, in those words back then. It was just as if every wrong that I had ever committed in my life came before me and I felt the weight of that wrong, that there was no justification for my actions, that I was guilty. Um, when I came face to face with God's justice, but, and re the realization of that for the first time in my life, there was that overwhelming sense of guilt. And also the, the realization of the truth of the thief's statement that this man referring to Jesus, he's innocent. His life was pristine. His life was crystal clear. Uh, in contrast to my life, which was marred and marked by everything that was foul and repugnant and evil and dark and sordid. And yet on the cross, I was realizing that Jesus Christ was taking that punishment. You know, he, he was clean, was taking that filth upon himself and judgment, taking my judgment, my punishment. And I said to that woman, how do you become a Christian? And she said, it's as simple as A, B, C. Accept Jesus Christ died for you, believe it. Go out and confess it to others. Accept it and believe it, yes, confess it to others. That's a bit of a sticking point. You know, I knew what I thought about Peter Thompson and Christianity being a crutch to lean on, uh, being, being a hypocrite, being a phony. Um, I knew the stick that Christians took for, you know, taking a stand for Jesus. Time's hard enough in prison without setting yourself up for, you know, a lot more abuse. You know, do I want to go out and tell people I'm a Christian? And, uh, you know, have all of that on top of the sentence. But... Yeah, that night, Christmas Eve, 1980, you know, Jesus Christ loved me enough to die for me. I love him enough to go out and tell all there is about him. And so uh, I got down on my knees in the cell, it's block seven of the maze prison. Repented of my sin, threw a wasted life before God. There was no claps of thunder. There was no flashes of lightning or funny mystical experience. Simple prayer of faith. Um, if there was anything subjective, all the hate, all the anger, all the rage, all the bitterness went like that. Literally, it went, went immediately. Uh, there was a peace, and I felt clean. Okay, those were 
if there's anything subjective, that, that's looking back, that's what it was like. Now, obviously, Gladys had said, you, had to, you have to confess this to others. So how am I going to confess it to others? Well, now, this isn't PC today, but see in the next cell to me, there's a fellow called Michael McGee, and we called him Shirley because he was like a woman. He was always gossiping like. And we, I knew that, I knew if I told Shirley McGee, he would tell everybody for me. <laughs> and so that Christmas morning, um, big prison officer, big Norman Shields, he opened the door and I followed him to the next cell, Shirley's cell. And as he opened it up, I shouted, and I became a Christian last night and run back into my own cell. <laughs> and through the form, like, Shirley told everybody. <laughs> and uh, I know that sounds a bit of a cop-out, but that's how I confess my faith at that, uh, in those early, early moments. Um, and yeah, I wrote out to family and friends, obviously, and told them about the change that had come into my life. And, uh, you know, a few weeks after I was saved, I got a letter from my mum. And she's saying in the letter, how could I talk about a God of love? How could I talk about a God of forgiveness? Where was this great God of love, this great God of, forgive this great God of forgiveness? And that your dad was gone down in the street like a dog by those IRA scum. And she'd underlined it three times. And she shared in the letter how she had met my dad after he came out of the forces in the Second World War and all their plans and their hopes and their dreams for the future and how it was all shattered. And so where was your, where was your great God of love? And I uh, must have been reading through Romans because I, I, I wrote her a letter based on Romans 12, 19. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Explaining that you know, part of my problem, part of my family's problem is that we thought vengeance belongs to us. Vengeance actually belongs to Almighty God. We had no right to uh, take the law into our own hands. And I sent that letter out to her, along with a covering letter to my younger sister who was professing faith. And I said to her, look, get down, get my mum, get her to church with you. And she did that. And it was um, sometime February... 81, uh, maybe several weeks after I became a Christian, I got a letter from my mom, and this is how she opened it. I now know what you mean about God's forgiveness. Tonight at church, I became a Christian. And you know, when I saw my mom saved, I saw a mountain of hatred and bitterness that had accumulated over 10 years. And God put his hand down and he lifted that mountain of hate and he just threw it to the side. Um, and I said about my mom, and it was true, you know, after my dad was killed, you know, her life became just black and dark and bleak, and she didn't sing anymore. You know, when, when she became a Christian that night, she started to sing again. And you see, Jesus puts the song back into the life. God takes a broken life, a dark life, and he gives it light, and he puts it all back together again. My mom's 95 today, and she's still singing God's praise. You know, this is the impact that God has on a life, that Jesus Christ has on a life. Um, I was released from prison in 1985, which was a relatively short uh, period of time for the seriousness of the crime that I was involved in. Um, after I was released in 1985 the following year 86 i went to the irish baptist college studied for the ministry it was at the irish baptist college that i met my wife roberta uh, she was studying hopefully to go out to russia she had studied she had studied russian at university and she was hoping to go to russia during that communist era and teach english as a foreign language but to go out as a missionary so she was at bible college to try and brush up on her theological education um but we met and she, uh, we got married. And I often say to folks at this point in the, in the talk that when I married Roberta, I got my second life sentence. And, and there's, there's no parole. There's no release date. <laughs> but uh, no, God, God's been good, so good to me. You know, I, I'm, see, in the 70s, I didn't show any mercy or anything to anybody. Um, but God has been so merciful to me. He gave me a wife. He gave me children. He's now given me grandchildren. 
he's been so good to me and what he has done uh, to me and I deserve none of it and uh, I'll, I'll finish with this and then I'll leave it open for questions okay when I was studying uh, at the Baptist College I did my pastoral assistantship in East End Baptist Church in Belfast it was the corner of the street where my dad was shot dead and along with the, an elder from the church, we were doing door-to-door work. So it was, it was certainly winter of 88. And um, we went to this door. We wrapped on the door. And this elderly gentleman opened the, opened the front door. And I think the icy blast hit him. And he brought me and the other uh, elder from the church into the home. And it was a bit odd, you know, because we're sitting there and then all of a sudden he starts to point to photographs all around the house, who this one was, who that one was, and who this one was. And then beside him there was this uh, very expensive gold frame with a, with a black and white photograph of a very young, good-looking young man in this, in this golden frame. And he's pointing at it and he says, and this one here, this one is my brother. And still looking at the frame and the photograph, he says, and they shot him dead, you know. And I said, who shot him dead? Looking at the photograph, he's still looking at it and pointed, pointing to it. He says, the IRA shot him dead in 1935. He was walking home one night, and the IRA opened up and killed him. 1935, this is 53 years after the event. And I said to him, tell me, how, how do you feel about it now? And he turned around from looking at the photograph and he, he looked at himself and the other guy from the church. He says, look, I know you two men, you're from the church. I don't want to offend you in any way. But I can tell you, I still hate them. You could feel the hate was tangible and I remember saying to him you know I know what that hate's like I was acquainted with it I know what the bitterness is like I know what the insatiable longing for revenge is like I know what I know what that cancer's like eating away at you but I also know what it's like to know the peace that comes through the knowledge of sins forgiven in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I shared that with him. That was in 1988, 18 years after my dad had killed. He was talking about an incident 53 years in the past. And 53 years seemed a lifetime. This June past, my, my dad was 53 years dead. It's like yesterday. And the, the pain, you know, it doesn't go away. And the, the questions don't go away. And the heartache's still there. 53 years later. And, you know, if God wants to give an answer on the day of judgment as to why things happened the way they happened, that's his prerogative. But friends, I know this. That because Jesus Christ came into my life, he has made me a new creature. And now it's a delight to be able to come to a group like yourselves and say the answer to your problem, the answer to the world's problems, is the Lord Jesus Christ. I said I would leave time for questions. Um, would you want to share the questions, Tim, or I'll just fire it out and take them myself? Yeah, that's fine. So, look, see if any of you have a question, if any of you want clarification, if any of you want to challenge anything that I've said, feel free to do so. Okay, but if you, if you haven't, you know, there'll be food provided afterwards, and I'll be staying around for a cup of tea, you know, I'll chat with you. Sometimes people are a bit too shy to ask a question but if any of you want to ask a question on anything just far away go ahead yeah 
have to say it again, so we're going to repeat it for the folks. Because you said that the ABC is... Yeah, the ABC. But you said for sure the cell next door. Yeah, the C part of it. Yeah. I'm sure it was, that was not the only C that you used. No, that's right. Well, um, that's a great question. The, the confessing wasn't the, the only one that I... You know, I did. There was other confessions, obviously, of my faith and sharing my faith with others within the prison. Of course, there was. Um, and the, you know, to begin sharing a lot of that over a five-year period, I did just under ten years, served just under ten years. Um, in the five-year period, when I was professing faith and sharing my faith with, um, you know, loyalists as well as republicans. Um, yeah, there is lots of confession. And of course, obviously, as you're growing in faith, the more you want to confess your faith and to share Jesus and this realization that God and Christ come into the world and he died for me. Boy, you want to shout that from the housetops. And uh, that, that's certainly what I wanted to do in prison. So yes, there was, there was lots of seas. There was lots of confessions. Okay. Was there a question at the back? Sorry, yeah. Oh, the question was about confession. Uh, was there lots of other confessions and opportunities to confess Christ? And uh, obviously there, there was, you know, uh, the, the opportunities to do so. All right, go ahead. The question was, has the, the hate dissipated? Has it gone? Have I had to wrestle with the idea of the hate? Because some of the uh, programs that our friend has watched that have been made with uh, people who have been in a similar position of myself, you know, that hate is still very much residual. It's very much part of their, their lives. Uh, yes, and with me, in my own case, I can honestly say the night I became a Christian, all of that hate anger, rage, bitterness, wrath, it did go like that immediately. Um, and I've never had to wrestle with it. You know, it would be the height of hypocrisy for me to stand before you tonight and say, you know, God has forgiven me my sin and I'm not going to forgive them for what they've done to me. Uh, now, they've never asked for forgiveness. The Republican movement have never asked for forgiveness. Um, they, they did, obviously, it would be forthcoming. But certainly within my heart, I hold no uh, hatred or animosity against them. Um, you know, at the end of the day, God is the judge. And uh, that hate, yeah, it is gone. I've, n I've never wrestled with it since the moment, you know, became a Christian that night. It did, it did go. So, uh, I, you know, I thank God for that. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. When you left prison uh, after your five years, what was your next step? What, what did you do to be relegated back into society? Yeah, after I left prison, um, so I was five years in prison and I wasn't a Christian, became a Christian, and then served another five years as a Christian within the confines of, uh, of the penal establishment. Now, when I got out of prison, uh, what did I do? What, was, what were the first things I did? Because it does take a while to readjust again to society outside. You know, you've become institutionalized over 10 years. And certainly I knew coming out of prison that I would need a church family quickly. So even before I got out of prison, um, I was linked up with a, a church in East Belfast where, where I lived. Uh, so that church were aware of me uh, before I came out. They were praying for me. Um, and so when I turned up, I, was, I wasn't turning up as a, you know, total surprise to them. They, they were expecting me and they gave me a warm welcome. So that, that was imperative to get, to get into a, a church family. 
Um, my own family unit itself was very supportive coming out of prison, and that was crucial also to have a strong um, family network supporting me. And then, as I say, the next thing was I wanted to get to the Bible college. I felt the Lord leading me to Bible college because you have this tremendous message to share. You know, what does the world need? The world needs Jesus Christ. You know, the world needs this message of forgiveness. And, and therefore, you know, as we're reading from Corinthians, uh, you're an ambassador for Christ. And this is like God is pleading uh, through us, you know, be reconciled to God. And that, that's what the world needs, to be reconciled to God through Christ. And so the next step was, you know, to get to, to Bible college, which I did in 1986 and studied for the ministry for three years. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the Christian community was more than welcoming, supportive. And I guess within the community back in Northern Ireland, there was a sense with a lot of folks because of the level of the violence that a lot of people, when you're talking to them, they would say there, but by the grace of God, went I. You know, it was so easy for people to get sucked in. And uh, the, uh, there was a, it wasn't, maybe because of the political nature, there wasn't so much of a stigma attached to the whole penal system, the penal thing. But yeah, the, the Christian church was very supportive. Okay, go ahead. The, um, the letters that you received from Zim, yeah. if you were to guess, what would, what would you say was written on them, if you were to guess? If I was to guess, I couldn't even guess, honestly, because the only thing I caught as I pulled this magazine out was the name of Jesus. That could have came from the, the biggest group of heretics in the world, like, you know. Um, I, I never read one of them. It might have been very sound. I don't know. I couldn't even begin to guess what was in the pages. So do you think God sent them to you? Do I think that God sent them to me? I think God that moved someone to send them to me. You know? Um, and who they were, I do not know. How they got my name and address, I haven't a clue. But that, that's how it happened. Um, and uh, yeah, they, say that they had a, a part to play, even though I never read one. Okay. Yeah. Were there any born again Christians in your family, parents, grandparents? No. No. Um, family were nominally Christian. My mum was the one who encourages to go to Sunday school, took us to church Christmas and Easter. But no, there was no Christian influences such apart from that. My dad had no interest really. Uh, he, his regiment was one of the first regiments in the Belson concentration camp in the Second World War. And Louis never talked about it. Like he said what he witnessed in Belson was enough for him to believe that convinced him that there was no God, there couldn't be a God after what he saw in Belson, that's what, what he said. So he never encouraged it, it was my mum said, no, get out to Sunday school, etc. But there was no um, big Christian influence. And, uh, some, some people asked also um, about my dad that night, you know, was it just a random shooting? It was, he was just coming home with his, with his friends. They were coming back to our house that night for uh, tea and sandwiches. And he said, these friends, I'll run on ahead and uh, get my wife to put the cattle on. And as he turned the corner, uh, several IRA gunmen opened up. And then that just carried on right through the night, just constant shooting. Um, but, you know, there was no, no aunts or uncles or anything who were Christians. Okay. One more. Go ahead. Yeah, did I ever find who it was who done, who killed my dad? No. Never found out. There wasn't my, there's, a, there's a book called Lost Lives. It's about that thick. And it documents all the deaths of people. Um, 
affected by the troubles. Now, in that book, there's a reference to an IRA man called Sturgeon, who was blown up by his own bomb in 1971, I think it was 71 or 72. He was blown up by his own bomb. And the IRA gave out a statement saying that he was responsible for my dad's death. And as soon as the IRA released that statement, the police really, not that they were looking seriously anyway, but they dropped it and said, oh, the, the murderer of Mr. McCurry um, was blown up by his own bomb. But my dad was actually uh, murdered by several gunmen. You know, the amount of rounds that were pulled out of his body indicated that there were uh, at least four gunmen. Um, and we suspect the IRA said it was this guy Sturgeon just to get maybe the police off the case. We don't know, but nah, no, we don't know who, uh, who, who did that. Okay. What happened, what happened to Peter? Am I going to ask you who are Christians here to pray for Peter? Peter got out of prison and um, things just went belly up for him. He didn't go on in his Christian faith, which is tragic. The last I heard about Peter was that he was an alcoholic. Um, so if you remember Peter in your prayers... I would appreciate that. There was one more just here. Is that okay? Um, well, at the end of the day, those folks will answer before God for their actions and their comments. Um, the, the passage I read from Corinthians was that, you know, God has given us a message of reconciliation through Christ. And that, that's what we should be seeking to do. See men and women reconciled to God through Christ. There's this wonderful message of peace to bring. And it's sad, sadly, you know, sometimes people get their politics and their Christianity mixed up and say things that, ain't, that aren't helpful. Um, but we live in a fallen world and um, you know, nobody's perfect. Uh, I would say that you know, a lot of people that you think are hate preachers aren't really when you get to know them. And you know, you, For example, the classic one would be Ian Paisley. You know, people thought Ian, pa Ian Paisley was a, a hate preacher. Ian used Ian was political one moment, religious the next. But he's Roman Catholic constituents. You know, every one of them you know, said that he was an excellent MP. There's people that say things plain to the camera, you know, for the folk. But they're totally different off the camera. But it does harm sometimes the gospel. And um, yes, yeah, just the nature of the, the problem in the province. Ahead. Um, do you find that coming to Christ has changed any of your political views or Oh yeah, my citizenship obviously is in heaven. Yeah, it's, not, it's, not, it's not anchored in the six counties anymore. Um, and politics really is, uh, it takes a back seat to the gospel you know, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't be involved in politics, but as long as they keep their politics biblical. I think sometimes the problem is people get involved in politics and then it becomes party politics, like your question. Um, it's the party and the party policy becomes the, the be-all and end-all. Yeah, it should always be the gospel. And if it's never going to be the gospel, you know, step away from politics. And so, um, you know, why would you waste time, you know... Uh, with a political message when you've got an eternal message, you know? And uh, what a delight it is to preach that and proclaim that. So it is.
So it's here, it's nearly time for tea. Bellies are rumbling, isn't that right? I can hear it. But here, I'll close with this, we, if it's okay, just to round off. And then we'll pray and give thanks for the food. Is that okay? Yeah. Have you got some, yeah, you got something to say. I remember that now about Christianity Explored. That's right. And we don't want to miss that. That's important. But here, you know, thanks for your attention tonight. Thanks for coming out. If any of you had questions you hadn't time to ask, you know, we'll chat about them over a cup of tea. But um, I don't know your spiritual state, whether you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or not, whether you came out of idle curiosity. But I know that sometimes when I talk to a group of people like yourselves, um, you know, you can look at me, and I've you obviously had a very checkered path. And I'm saying that God's forgiven me. He's cleansed me from my sin. I'm going to have him when I die. And you can look at me and say, well, you know, of that guy who's been involved in terrorism, if he can talk about forgiveness and going to heaven, I've never done any of the things that he's done. Um, and if he's an amen, you know. And you see at the end of the day, you see in the day of judgment, God is not going to set your life beside my life and say, how does your life measure up? Um, well, your life is morally streets ahead of that guy. You're a good husband, a good wife, a good son, a good daughter, whatever. Okay. And you're banking on your goodness to get you into heaven. Yeah, I'm a good person. God will not set your life beside my life, okay? And say, how does it measure up? God will set your life beside the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was perfect, who was sinless. And he will say, how does your life measure up to that life? How does your life measure up to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, is your life sinless? Are you perfect? And see if your life is falling less short than perfection. Then you need to come to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to repent of your self-righteousness, repent of your goodness. Because all our goodness in God's sight, all our goodness, all our righteousness is like a filthy rag. And so Jesus died for all our self-righteousness also. Because it's not good enough to get us into heaven. And so don't be using me as your yardstick. Jesus Christ, he's the yardstick. He's the measuring board. And I'll hand over to Tim to tell us about Christianity Explored. Yes. Do you need this wee thing or you stop up? That's okay. Just before uh, Billy prays, uh, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thank you to you for joining us this evening. And all I wanted to mention was, it could be for some of you, the things that Billy has been saying about Jesus are very new. It may have whet your appetite to find out more about Jesus. And as a church, well, we meet here uh, Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, every week talking about Jesus. But if you'd be interested in an introduction to Jesus, we have a course called Christianity Explored. We run that a couple of times a year when we have people who are interested in doing it. So if you're interested in that, it's just an hour a week. Uh, you wouldn't be asked to pray or read or sing. It's just telling you what the Bible says about Jesus. If you're interested in that, just catch me afterwards and I'll get your details and uh, we can see uh, when we could start a course at a time that suited you. Just wanted to make that offer to you. I'll hand back to Billy now and he'll uh, close in prayer. Thank you. Well, friends, let's pray. Father, we give you praise and thanks for this night that you have planned from before the foundation of the world. We thank you for each person who has been gathered into this little chapel. And Lord, you know uh, their hearts. You know where they are at spiritually. We pray that everyone here would be uh, moved to uh, seriously uh, consider their state before you, a holy and a righteous God. And if they're falling short, that they would have the grace and the strength to repent of their sin and embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior who has come to give his life and give it abundantly. Pray, Father, that you would bless uh, the food to our bodies that has been provided. Our conversations over uh, a cup of tea and food. We pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to bless this night long after the voice of man is silent. May your spirit still be working in the hearts and minds of those who are present.
Yours we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.